Can Be New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. The other day, my uh, daughter-in-law was painting in her kitchen, and she got done and put all the paint together and pushed it back on the counter. She looked at my granddaughter, Ella, and said, Now, don't get into the paint. So my daughter-in-law went back into another room and painted there. And a few minutes later, here comes Ella with paint all over herself. And she looked at her mom and she said, I said in my mind, don't paint. Don't get into the paint. And I did. And I'm a bad daughter. Now, she said all that before she was saved because she got saved a little little later down the road. But... uh, We said, no, you're not a bad daughter. And sometimes we feel that way. It's Romans chapter 7, that great conflict. I uh, do what I'm not supposed to do, and I don't do what I'm supposed to do. And there's just a great conflict there. And today what we want to do is we want to take a little bit of time and look through the Gospel of John together. We're going to look at the Gospel of John chapter 10. And if you want to, you can open your Bibles there with me. We have it on the overheads as well. We're studying John chapter 10 because in John chapter 10, it gives us the picture of Jesus being the good shepherd. And that explains the rod and the staff that you see here. It's just a reminder that we have someone in our life that is central to who we are and that leads us well and that provides everything that we need. And that's certainly seen in this whole chapter. We've broken it down into three parts. We finished last week part one and that was getting to know the good shepherd and his voice. And this week we're going to talk about leading like the good shepherd. And next week we're going to talk about believing in the good shepherd. It's broken down so that we can understand it. And I really believe that this is one of those chapters that you have to take a little time and go through. Because there's so much there that we can talk about. What I'd like to do right now is just read beginning at verse 11 of John chapter 10. And this is what it says. Jesus declares this. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for his sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and he doesn't really care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. The father loves me because I sacrifice my life so I may take it up again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. Verse 19, And he said these things, and the people were again divided amongst their opinions about him. Some said that he's demon-possessed and out of his mind. Why listen to a man like that? Others said, This man doesn't sound like a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That's a good question, isn't it? 
We look here and we see another picture, really an allegory of the good shepherd. In some places, it's called a parable, but you have to remember, as I've repeated before, the gospel of John doesn't teach us through parables. He teaches us through allegories, and this is an allegory, and there are a few right in this story here. There are a few that when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, when he makes that declaration, it's the beginning of an allegory. And what we recognize here is some amazing things. And I know this, sometimes it's hard to let ourselves think that we can lead like the good shepherd. I believe the allegory Jesus has here in John chapter 10 is first declaring himself to be the good shepherd of God's people. But I also think there's something else here, that if we move through it too quickly, we were not going to pick it up, we're not going to notice. But it's this, that Jesus gives us a model to emulate as we influence and lead others. What he's saying to us is this, certainly I am the good shepherd, that's what he's saying. And he's saying, and I have my sheep, and I want to take care of my sheep. But anytime he brings an allegory to his listeners, he's also saying, listen, there are things about my life, things about me and my character that you can model as well. This is one of those allegories that sometimes we pull away from and say, can we really lead like the good shepherd? I mean, can we really emulate and live out some of the characteristics that are found in the good shepherd? The answer is yes, or these stories wouldn't be here. Jesus wouldn't teach them like he teaches them. You see, the central thought in this story is very, very clear. And that's given to us in one phrase repeated four times. It's this, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. My translation in the New Living Translation, it says the good shepherd sacrifices his life for his sheep. Again, I've chosen the NLT because it is the best rendition of ancient shepherding that I can find in any of the translations. It gives us a good picture of exactly what Jesus was talking about as he spoke into their culture. It's important when we read a story like this that we understand some of the culture here. Let me explain this to you. Jesus is saying something here that was so rare during that day. He's saying that I'm laying my life down for my sheep. This was a rare occurrence among shepherds in Palestine. But for Jesus, it was the purpose of his mission. Look at verse 11. Jesus came to give his life so many would live. This is not only his purpose, it was his very nature. And that's the point. What he's wanting you to see is the contrast between a shepherd and him. What he's wanting, as we read here, he's wanting you to see the contrast between a hireling and himself. And he's saying we are contrasted because of our very nature. It isn't only because of our behavior. It isn't only because we do things differently. It's because of who we are at heart. It's who we are at the core of our being. Jesus is making that that contrast for all of us to see. Now, a shepherd during Jesus' time may have, may have lost his life defending the sheep, but you can be sure of this. He lost his life on accident. It wasn't on purpose. He may have lost his life while a sheep was uh, teetering over the edge of a cliff and he reached down to help the sheep and he fell over by accident. He may have lost his life while he was going through and clearing out a nave or a cave so the sheep could spend the night and he was bitten by some snakes. He may have lost his life even by wolves attacking the the flock. But all of this would have been by accident. It wasn't on purpose. And I don't want you to miss this. 
While Palestinian shepherds died on accident, it says here that the good shepherd voluntarily laid his life down for you. He had a choice. He engaged his will. And he says, I love these sheep so much, I am compelled to, by nature, by my heart, to lay my life down for sheep. You see, Jesus is setting himself apart from the shepherds of his day, and he's saying, what I do is different than what you know about shepherds. A good shepherd does not, by his nature, give his life for his sheep, but the good shepherd absolutely does. Here's something else. The death of the Palestinian shepherd was a huge disaster for the sheep. The shepherd understood that. If he lost his life, then those sheep would perish. They didn't have anyone to take care of them. And we all know this. It's common knowledge. Sheep are dumb. They, they, they couldn't find what they needed. They, they couldn't get what they, what they really needed and wanted in their life. They couldn't. It all depended on the shepherd. So it was up to the shepherd in Palestine to make sure that he lived, to make sure that he took care of himself. But here we have something totally different being, being taught to us. The death of the good shepherd means life for a sheep. That's you and me. The Bible says before the foundations of the earth... The lamb was slain. The lamb of God was given for all of us. He died for our sins. That's clearly stated here. Now I want you to look at verses 12 and 13. I'm going to read it again. It says this. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and he doesn't really care uh, about the sheep. Now here, Jesus is telling us that there's a big difference in the actions of a man who was really not the shepherd at all. You notice the progression here? It's a subtle progression. He implies that a normal shepherd won't lay his life down because the flock depends on the shepherd living. He says, I am being compared to that. I am the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd who lays his life down. And then it goes a little further, and he draws a stark contrast of him and a hireling now. Now, a hireling wasn't a shepherd at all. A hireling had nothing to do with shepherding. This person is simply a servant who's paid to do his work. I don't know. There may have been a hireling union somewhere. Someone waiting outside, a few guys standing in line. Shepherds would walk by and look and say, Ah, Yeshua, come here. Do you want to earn some denarii today? Yeah, they wanted to make a living, so they said, Sure, I'll just do what you tell me to do. I'm really not a shepherd but I'll go and take care of your sheep for a while. And that's exactly the image drawn here of uh, what a hireling really is and what he's all about. What's this man interested in? Well, he's interested in money. He's not interested in sheep. I want to say this just so we understand and we have a clear picture of this. Over time in church teaching, the term hireling has developed negative connotations. When Jesus gave this example, he wasn't putting a negative or a positive spin on it. He was saying it is what it is. A hireling just does not care for the sheep. It's a fact. And over time, what we've done is we've vilified unjustly this role in Scripture. Because there's only one other place in the Word that this word is used, hireling. And it's in Mark chapter 1, verse 20. It's where it talks about men uh, being paid to fish. It has to do with Zebedee's hired hands. 
that they were hired to, to fish for him. This hired hand is only interested in getting paid for doing the job rather than the job itself. You have to understand this. This is cultural context for us to understand and know this story better. Because on the surface, we can just go by and not get this. We don't understand it. But it's important we understand the context in which this took place. And because he's a hireling, when the wolf attacks, he has no, absolutely no obligation to stick around. So he runs away. Now, apparently, this happens so often that certain laws had to be written because there was such damage being done to flocks at the expense of the shepherd because the hireling would take off, wouldn't even stick around, see the slightest sign of danger, and would take off, run into the hills. And so they created laws to make people responsible for their actions. And these laws are found in a book called the Mishnah. The Mishnah was written between the Old and the New Testament and is actually the second authority in what goes on in Israel according to law and civil law, criminal, civil law, second only to the Torah. And it's case studies. It's actually this smart rabbi named Nanish got these lawyers together and said, man, we're having some problems here with, with a lot of things, but one of the things we're having problems with is some of these hirelings are just taken off and, and the shepherds are left just holding the bag. That's their commerce. That's their income. That's their business. We can't let this happen. And so the mission is divided into six sections, and section four is called the Nazim. It means the damages. So they get together, like attorneys do, and they start drawing this up. And they, not just, they don't just talk about it in terms of what the law says, but they draft all these case studies to support the law. Just like the Constitution, when you argue Constitution in court, what do you do? You bring in case studies. They're called tort arguments. That's what happens here. That's the Mishnah. Really important to Jewish law. And here's what it says in the Mishnah. I love this. It says that if a one wolf attacks the flock, then the hireling is required to defend the sheep. There you go. Then it goes on. But if two wolves attack, it's counted as an unavoidable accident. Quote, the hired man can take off without repaying any damages whatsoever. He's free. Here's the connection I, I want you to make here. It's important you make this connection. The good shepherd stands apart from the hireling. He gives his life for his sheep without conditions. See, the good shepherd laid his life down for you unconditionally. Not like other shepherds, who there were conditions attached. There were laws that govern their activities. They went to civil court. They went to criminal court. They had all these kinds of things. When you look at the good shepherd, you can be sure that he's laying his life down for you unconditionally. There are absolutely no strings attached. What does that mean to me? It means that no matter my past, no matter how dark, how lost, how depraved, how messed up, how dysfunctional I was and am, he loves me, and he lays his life down for me. You see, there are no bounds to unconditional love. You may draw boundaries on your own life and say, well, hmm, God can forgive me up to this point, but he, ah, not really for this or for that. The Bible says the good shepherd has laid his life down for you unconditionally. There are absolutely no strings attached. There are no boundaries or limits put on his love for you. And that's what I appreciate 
about my relationship with the good shepherd. Hear what it says here. It says the hireling runs away, not by chance. And I want you to understand this. Not by chance. It's not by accident. It's not fortuitous. But because he is what he is. Because he is by nature a hireling. How do I make a comparison in my own life? Well, let me tell you how I applied this to my own life. Before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, why did you sin? really simple answer because you were a sinner listen when you were born into sin you had absolutely no choice when you're born into sin before Christ Jesus you have no choice it's when we come into faith in Jesus Christ that now we have the power to overcome sin we've been given a choice before I was lost I was I was depraved I didn't know where to go I didn't know what to do even my best acts didn't satisfy the yearning and the hole and the void in my own heart like I thought it would I had no choice. The hireling had no choice. The hireling is a hireling. He just does what he does. Sinners do what they do. That's why you always refrain from judgment in somebody else's life. Because it's by nature. Hmm. In essence, before Jesus, we were all hirelings. We were in it for ourselves. We were in it for the pay. There were really no loyalties. We were selfish to the core. Selfish, self-centered, egotistical by nature. And now Jesus comes and he gives us a choice. He gives us a chance. He gives us opportunity. I love the scripture in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, but now those who were once afar off, let me rephrase it, uh, but now those who were once hirelings, are brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus says he lays his life down or he sacrifices his life for his sheep four times, he uses a word here that means soul. He lays his soul down for his sheep. Another place, he sets himself apart from all the rest of the world, all the rest of the shepherds, because he's the only one that can lay his soul down for you. And the reason I know that is because Peter had a conversation with him. And said, I heard what you said, Lord. I heard that you said you would lay your life down for your sheep. So will I. I heard you say, Lord, that you would lay your soul down for your sheep. I will also lay my soul down for my sheep. And Jesus responded back firmly but with love. Peter, you can't do that. You have no ability to do that. It's only I that does that. How do I know that? Because when he was the sacrificial lamb, the Bible says that he emptied himself out of everything. He laid his soul down. The word is called kenosis. He emptied everything out for you. He was forsaken by God. You have never been forsaken by God. You've never experienced what it's like to be forsaken by God. Only when you pour out your soul like Jesus did was there that forsaken by God. That moment, those those minutes. I don't know how long it lasted, but it had to be absolute hell on earth. Jesus is the only one that can lay his soul down. No one can give their soul for another except Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53.10 says, He makes his soul an offering for your sin. Literally. 
Now I want you to look at your outline there because you haven't really gone to it yet. I wanted to give you the context and here's what I want to say right now. How do I apply that to my life? What is the essence of really laying your life down? And when I say that, I don't mean necessarily your soul because you can't do that, but living a selfless life. What does it look like for you and me to live a selfless life? I read something like this and somewhere I need to apply it. Somewhere I need to hang my hat. And here's what I can do. It's leading like the good shepherd. Number one, here's how you do it. Using your advantage to help and serve those who are disadvantaged. Maybe you've never heard it phrased or framed like that. So let me explain it to you in the form of a question. Have you ever been in a jam and someone comes along unexpectedly and helps you out? Everyone that that's happened to say I. All of us. What does that mean? It means someone who was at an advantage came when I was at a disadvantage and helped me. They took care of me. They, they brought me up so I could at least by, be on even playing field. Are you getting the picture? Right now in this room, there are some of us at disadvantage and advantage. All of us are at disadvantages and advantages in some way or another. But it's the person that has the advantage that comes along and looks at the person who has a disadvantage and says, I'm not going to hold on to this for myself. I'm not going to use this selfishly. I'm going to take my advantage and I'm going to help you with your disadvantage. And now we stand on even ground together. That's what it means to live a selfless life. That's what it means to lead like the good shepherd. That's really the bottom line. When Jesus says, man, you need to take care of the poor. You need to take care of the widows. You need to take care of the orphans. Why does he say that? He says, because you have the advantage, use your advantage to take care of those who have the disadvantage. I was in a place like that several years ago. In a foreign airport, getting ready to head out. It's not a good place to be. The country was in conflict. In fact, it just made the news three days ago because of a, a, a massive bombing that took place. I'm there. They canceled the flight. I'm in the middle of nowhere with a friend, and we are at a horrible disadvantage. There's no one there, no one who knows us, no one who knows what's happened altogether. There was a riot that broke out. We're standing there looking at each other going, what do we do now? No passports because they already took them at the ticket gate. No tickets because they took them. We already checked in our luggage here we stand almost like the apostle paul virtually without clothing <laughs> didn't know what to do total disadvantage and out of quote nowhere someone walks by and looks at us and says hey are you two guys four square this is in the most densely populated place on planet earth really and we said yes we are <laughs> can you please help us and he says, I want you to follow me. I have another flight for you to get on. He did all the paperwork. He took us to Air France. He was an administrator, a supervisor for Air France. He takes us all the way down another terminal, gets us up to the plane. He says to the people at the plane, they have no passports, they have no tickets, they have no luggage, let them on. That's unheard of. They finally find our passports, which helped our case, and they get us on the plane, and we fly out, of this place and we realized that we were at a huge disadvantage. Someone came along who had an advantage and took care of us. It was the only time in my life while I was in that plane, I was thinking to myself, no one in the world knows where I'm at. 
My wife doesn't. My friends don't. We were headed to Germany. That plane, that, 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 that flight got canceled. And now we're headed uh, to Paris. Nice place to go except when you're lost. No one knew. A total disadvantage. Someone took care of us. Jesus, listen. Jesus used his advantage to help and serve all who were disadvantaged. Were you disadvantaged? Absolutely. Lost without sin. No hope of recovery. No hope whatsoever. Jesus comes along. In Philippians 2, 5, and 6, it says this. Hear the instruction. Your attitude should be the same. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his advantage as God. But he took that advantage and he gave it to you. And now you are called sons and daughters of the king. I would say that is a huge advantage now. You've been lifted up, the Bible says, and you've been put on a place that you can walk. The Apostle Paul shows us what using your advantage to help or serve those who are disadvantaged looks like in the book of Philemon, or Philemon, you can say. I love the story. I love what it says there. The Apostle Paul gets this, this relationship going with a slave named Onesimus, probably in the Roman prison or maybe in Caesarea somewhere, but he meets this runaway slave named Onesimus and he leads him to the Lord and he recognizes he knows his master Philemon because Philemon is an elder in the church of Colossia and so he writes this letter to Philemon. It's the it's the shortest book in the Bible, I think. It's one chapter, 25, 30 verses. Rarely studied, but would be a great study to know what it means to use and lead like Jesus leads. Because the apostle Paul writes this letter to Philemon, and he says, listen, I've led this son in the faith. He was useless to you, but now he is useful because he is a son in the faith. By the way, it's kind of an irony here. Onesimus means useful. That's what his name means. The Apostle Paul says, I've lifted him up. God has lifted him up. Can you imagine what Onesimus is hearing? He is subhuman as a slave, and now he hears his mentor, his father in the faith, say to his owner, he says to him, he is a son to me now. He's not a dog. He's not a slave. He's not an animal. He is a son to me. Wow. Even in prison, the Apostle Paul takes his apostolic advantage and he uses it and he says to Philemon, accept him, receive him with open arms. I love him, you should love him too. (laughs) Then he says this, I love this apostolic arm twisting. And when you've done all this, uh, make a bed for me because I think I'm gonna follow up on what you've done here. He's in prison, he's not gonna follow up. But he's writing that so he understands what's going on. What does he do? He uses his advantage to help someone sorely at a disadvantage and he lifts him up. Friends, that's what God has called us to do. Can I tell you a few things that you can do when you're talking about your advantage and helping someone who's disadvantaged? Number one, don't avoid confrontation. Listen, whenever you go to help somebody, there's always obstacles in the way and you can justify your lack of help because of those obstacles. When God says, hey, I want you to do this, talk to someone about Jesus, do this and serve someone. Well, man, I'm kind of crammed for time. It's not in my schedule. Always obstacles, always. Remember that. It is never a straight path. 
It is never a clear path. There is always obstacles. There are always confrontations. Most of those confrontations come from our enemy, the enemy of our soul, Satan. What we need to recognize is there are always going to be confrontations, and you need to know that. Don't avoid those. Secondly is this. Use your influence well. All of you have been given influence. And I particularly speak to mothers and fathers and relationships. Use your influence well. Use your influence to help someone, not hurt them, not to tear them down, but to lift them up. I want to use my influence well. You want to use your influence well. And then here's the next one. Trust and believe the best in others. Wow. You know how hard this is for us to do? Especially if someone's hurt us. And the Lord keeps saying, do you trust and believe in the best in others? Because if you don't, you know what you're going to be? One bitter, cynical person who dies a horrible, lonely death. The Bible says do this. Keep doing it. Keep trusting and believing. The Apostle Paul is trusting and believing in a runaway slave, the worst of the worst, who had obviously offended Philemon or he wouldn't have been in prison. The Apostle Paul says, I I believe in him. I trust him. I, I know God has good things in store for him. I know he does. And then here's the second. Using your experience to help and serve those who are inexperienced. Not only your advantage to disadvantage, but an experience to help the inexperienced. Let me ask this. Have you ever lacked direction in life? And someone came along and pointed the way. All here that has had that happen say, I all of us. We all have. That's just someone taking their experience who's down the road a little further and says, oh, I know where you're at. You, you need to get up here. Go this way and this way will help you out. It's something I've experienced. I can turn around and look at those that are inexperienced and say, come, follow me. I'll show you the way. And I'm so thankful for people like that early on in ministry when I was wet behind the ears, had no clue what to do. I was always calling on the experienced and saying, how do you do this? Somebody help me. And the experienced would say, hey, do this. Remember these things. Follow this path. And I'm going to tell you what, that just saved me so many times. See, there are people in here who have a lot of experience in certain things. You're going to run into people who are inexperienced, and you're there for a reason. You've crossed paths for a reason. It's to help these people. Listen, Jesus has gone before us. Keep that in mind. Jesus has been the experienced to help the inexperienced. The Bible says that he's our trailblazer. He's the author and finisher of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Everything about his life means that he goes before. He has experienced everything you have experienced. There's nothing that you can experience in this life or ten other lives that Jesus has not experienced. Hebrews 4.15 says he is our great high priest. And all those things that you've suffered, he suffered them as well. In fact, he suffered them before you ever suffered, before you ever thought about it, before you ever knew what suffering was really all about. While you were a naive little kid running around not thinking there's any suffering in the world, Jesus suffered already. Wow. He's experienced, that's for sure. Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have this conflict over John Mark. Paul wants to take off one way, and Barnabas says, okay, we can do that. Let's bring John Mark. And Paul says, not a chance. That kid wimped out on us. He wasn't faithful. He's inexperienced. He's not going with me. 
And Barnabas steps up and I, he says, I will take him. He's going to go with me. Barnabas simply means encourager. And that's exactly what John Mark needed at that time. And Barnabas took John Mark. John Mark becomes one of the great leaders of the church of Jesus Christ. Because Barnabas said, I, I like him. I, I know he's inexperienced. I, I know he bailed out a few times. But I'm going to stick with him. What does it look like? Let me tell you what an experience looks like when you're helping inexperience. Number one, don't assume anything. <laughs> don't assume the inexperienced know anything. Because when you start assuming the people following you know certain things, that's when resentment, anger, all of those things, disappointment settle in. You don't assume, don't treat or patronize people poorly, but you don't assume anything. That's the mistake I've made several times. I just assumed you know certain things. I assume you know certain things. And there are some certain things that aren't known. So don't, don't assume a lot. Second, Maybe the most important, please write this down in bold print. I mean, scribble it. <laughs> Rip your paper up with this one. Be patient. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm not patient. I'm laughing because by nature, I am the most impatient person that ever lived on planet Earth. Impatience got me in more trouble when I was a kid, got me more trouble when I was a young adult, and if I don't watch it, it gets me in more trouble right now. Impatience is horrible. It vexes me. I'm not by nature a patient person. And here's the amazing thing. Over time, I've prayed. And listen, if you pray and ask God for patience, remember what you prayed. Okay? Because he will bless you with bricks. A load to carry. There's something that will happen. All of a sudden, circumstances that come into your life, nothing goes your way, and you're thinking, what is going on here? Did you pray for patience? Yeah, that's it. You prayed for patience. God's going to give it to you, and he gives it to you in real time. <laughs> Lord, give me patience. Please give me patience. Ah! And it came. And here's what I've had happen to me over the years. And I've heard this more often. The virtue that people have commented in my life is, man, you're a patient person. <laughs> I almost laugh. I have laughed. I've laughed in some of your faces. I don't, I'm sorry. <laughs> because I know my heart is exceedingly wicked and impatient. But this is the key. He has made my weakness a strength. There are times the Lord will let me go to the very end and people will be saying, why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? And I'm thinking, man, I wished I could. I would cut this off right now. But the Lord won't let me. I'm sorry. We got to deal with it. And you know, usually the people that tell me to cut it off quick are the people I've given patience to before. It's amazing. It's an irony. Have grace. Have patience. Here's another one. Let the inexperienced experience their own wins. Don't take credit for their wins. Sometimes I hear this and I hear the experience say, yeah, I taught the kid everything he knows. Yeah, mm-hmm. They're here, look what they're doing, and it's all because of me. No, it's not. Someone did the same for you. You know what you do with someone's inexperience and your experience? You lead them to the threshold of victory and you pull back into the shadows and you let them experience that win on their own. It's their win. Let them have it. 
Because when you get it, parents, grandparents, spouses, don't take credit. Yeah, that's my kid. I know there's a temptation. Be able to step back and say, wow, son, you really did a great job there. Honey, you did a great job there. What a win. You know that builds confidence? Builds confidence in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Let them win and don't take credit for it. The, uh, the ba- John the Baptist said, I need to become lesser so he can become greater. I just need to go off somewhere. I'll go out in the wilderness a little longer and eat some honey and some mm, grasshoppers. But I'm going to do this so that Jesus be- can become great. The best satisfaction, the greatest joy I have in life is watching so many people come into their own as disciples and I wasn't anywhere to be found. Fingerprints erased, a track erased. You know what you can do? You can be so manipulative sometimes. You can let people follow a track right back to you. <laughs> you can. You can just kind of set it up and say, well, eventually someone will figure out I was behind this because I've left enough clues. Don't leave any clues. Get out of there. And let the inexperienced experience win in their life. And here's another one. Using your wisdom to help serve those who lack wisdom. Have you ever wondered how and what to do in a difficult circumstance and someone explained it in a way that you could understand? All here that have experienced that say I. All of us. Listen, you can have all the experience in the world and still lack wisdom. Let me put it another way. You can have all the experience in the world and still be dumb as a post. I know people who have had a lot of experience and I'm thinking, hey, you, have you figured this out yet? Because you keep getting battered around here and you keep doing the same thing. Keep trying to do the same thing. You want a different result. It's not going to happen. It will never happen. Husbands and wives, you argue with each other. It blows up and you're going, oh, why do we get here? Well, you just haven't changed. The result's the same. will always be the same. You've experienced a lot of fights. <laughs> Got a lot of experience there. But you're still in the same place. What does that mean? You lack wisdom. And the Bible says in James, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, and God will give you wisdom. But he usually gives you wisdom. You know how he does that? Through other people. People smarter than you. It's not knowledge. Do you know the word that Jesus uses when he talks to his disciples? It's the word understanding. He says, guys, you're not getting it. You're getting getting the surface of things, but you aren't perceiving. You don't understand. And what he's saying is, you lack wisdom. And before I leave, you need to have some wisdom. Because you're going to face some things that are going to just kill you. They're just going to literally come after you. And you have to have wisdom in your life. Wisdom is really understanding and applying your experiences. When Jesus would spend time with his disciples, he would always be concerned that they get it. Did they understand? Did they perceive? Understanding and perception of the qualities of wisdom. And here are a few others. It's found in Proverbs 9, 10 through 12. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. In other words, the beginning of wisdom is the reverence of God. Can I tell you the two qualities I see in wise people? Reverence and humility. Let me put it another way. Those that lack wisdom are irreverent and prideful. Take inventory. Maybe there's a reason things aren't going the way that they need to go. 
I think what you need to do is say, Lord, I, I need to fear you. Please help me do that. Have reverence for you. Can I say this? It's not only having reverence for God, but it's having reverence for everything God has reverence for. Wow. Can I tell you some things he has reverence for? Your relationships. Don't mock those things. You know, I hear so many vile, mocking things come out of Christians. And I hear it over the radio. I hear it on the news. I hear it everywhere. And I'm going, why are you guys talking like that? What are you doing? What do you hope to gain? Why are you so critical of this and critical of that? The president didn't screw your life up. The government didn't do it. There are things you have to look at in your own life and say, wow, there's some things I need to pay attention to. That's being wise. A world full of knowledge but lack wisdom. I think we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Peter 5, 1 Peter 5, chapter 14. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. I love the way you use that. He doesn't say humble yourself under the caring, tender, loving hand of God. He says humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He wants you to know how strong he is and he has control of every aspect of your life. And because he does, you need to humble yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And here's the last thing. Using your passion. I love this. This is my favorite. That's why I ended with this. Using your passion to help and serve those who are passionless. Have you ever been stagnant in life, not going anywhere, and someone came along and lit a fire under you? I have, and I'm so thankful for those people. I needed a fire lit. What do you think attracted the disciples to Jesus Christ? What do you think? Tell me, tell me your first impression. I mean, think about it. what was the first thing that attracted the disciples to Jesus Christ? Was it his understanding of the Torah? Was it because he knew the law so well? Now remember, they're young fishermen. They're hardy workers. They're in their late teens, early 20s. What do you think is going to capture the attention and the imagination of someone like that today? It isn't their acumen of some subject or some knowledge. It is his passion. They looked and they saw, wow, that guy has some passion. I want to follow him. I want to be close to him. I want to be around him because there's something about passion-filled people that's attractive. Wow. There's something we need today in this church and churches around. It's passion. We become too used to things. We become way too comfortable for, for my comfortability. What attracted those disciples? What attracts us? It was his passion for God and people. We are passionate people. And what a passionate people look like. Why are passionate people passionate? Let me give you a few things. Number one, they believe that what they're doing makes a difference. Passionate people are passionate because they believe that what they're doing really does make a difference. Are you doing something today that you think makes a difference? Because if you're not, you probably are either there already or getting close to being passionless. Here's another one. They believe that what they're doing is the most important thing in the world. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Especially about immature, passionate people. And we have a lot of them in this church, and that's why I love this place, because it's so full of grace. But they're just not growing up. They're passionate. They just haven't learned maturity. 
And listen, maturity doesn't come chronologically. You can be 50 and be immature. And you can have passion, and that's great. God can use something. I think that's the offering you give to God is a passion to say, Lord, I am going to follow you with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind. Now help me. They think it's the most important thing in the world. I've talked to young leaders here, and they just go, why doesn't anyone else get it? Why is the church so bad? And why are they so sleepy? And why are... And I say, whoa, 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 whoa. Back down just a little bit here because they're going to pay your bills, bro. (laughs) Settle down. You got to learn to take your passion and not condemn and criticize everyone. Just live it out. It isn't what everyone else does because it's your passion is wonderful. But don't lay that template on other people. They're getting it. And if they're not, I know God deals with people. That's what I know. And here's something else, and it's the last thing. Passionate people, in order to be passionate, they believe that what they're doing should involve you. (laughs) They do. They look out there and say, why isn't everybody going to be missionaries? Why doesn't everybody go to the farthest horizons of the earth? Why doesn't everyone do it? Everyone should do it. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Why aren't people going and making disciples? Because passionate people think all of you should be involved. They want to get you involved. They want you to be part of it. And they're always pestering you. I love that about passionate people. They want you involved. I have a passionate granddaughter. Everything she does, she says, Papa, do this with me. Do this with me. Do this with me. I'm tired. The end of the day, she do this, do this, do this. And you run around, play this. And the games and everything she does changes in about 90 seconds. Why is she? She's passionate. And she wants me to be involved. She wants everyone to be involved. And if you're not, she can't stand it. The Bible says go and make disciples. Are you doing it? That's what it says. The Bible says go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Are you doing it? Passionate people want you involved. They want everyone to be involved. Are you passionate about the things of life? Are you passionate about your marriage? Passionate about your kids? Are you passionate about what God has called you to do, would you take inventory check? See if you have passion there. Because that's what it takes, using your passion to help those who are passionless. Dr. Howard Hendricks, one of my, my favorite, favorite men of all time. In fact, he formed, helped form my Christian theology when I was young. Helped me understand leadership. He's now with Jesus, but great man. He tells this story, and I want to share this story with you. It says, not long ago, I lost one of my best friends, a woman that was 80 years, 86 years old and most, the most exciting lay teacher I've ever been exposed to. The last time I saw her on planet Earth was at one of those Christian parties. We were all sitting around and like we were on eggshells looking pious when she walked in and said, well, Hendricks, I haven't seen you for a long time. What are the five best books you've been reading lately? She had a way of changing a group's dynamic. Her philosophy was this. Let's not get bored with each other. Let's get into a discussion. And if we can find anything to discuss or can't find anything to discuss, let's get into an argument. (laughs) 
She was 83 years old on her last trip to the Holy Land. She went there with a group of NFL football players. He says, one of my most vivid memories of her is seeing her out in front of everyone, yelling back at them, saying, come on, men, get with it. She died in her sleep in her daughter's home in Dallas, Texas. He said her daughter told me that just before she died, she had written out her goals for the next 10 years. May God increase her tribe. Church, come on, get with it. Let there be some passion in your life. That's what you've been called to, have passion. Have passion today and let God's spirit stir it up in you. It's something we're missing in our lives today. Let God's Holy Spirit churn it up in you. In Jesus' name, can you say amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? And as you do, I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward. We're going to finish with a song today. You'd be interested to know with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, that in the rendition of a shepherding here that Jesus talks about, he actually says this in the original language. It says, the hireling is passionless for the sheep. He uses that word. Today we need to be passionate. And I'm going to finish by saying to you, if today you need some passion in your life, and you already know what it's about, just a moment, we're going to have prayer teams around this building, and you go to them and ask them to pray for you. Maybe you need some maturity to work with your passion. Whatever it is that concerns passion in your life, whether it's the forming of or even getting passion, go and have someone pray with you. Come on, get with it. We need to have passion in our lives, beginning with our passion for Jesus Christ. Father, we want to thank you today for being our great and good and chief shepherd. We understand what you've done for us, that you've taken your advantage to help us who are disadvantaged. You've taken your experience and helped us who are inexperienced. Certainly, you've taken wisdom and helped us where we lack wisdom. And you've taken your passion and you've helped those that are passionless. Help us today. In Jesus' name. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope. 